Welcome to Conversations in Equine Science. My name is Kate Acton and I'm joined by Nancy McLean. And this is the podcast where we take research from the equine industry and try to make it accessible for owners and horse enthusiasts. Just to remember that with each horse, they are an individual. So one size won't always fit all. And with that in mind, you should always seek professional advice before implementing the research that we discuss. Today, we are going to take a look at a very interesting and in-depth um, thesis that was done by Jutta Ulrich von Burstel. And this is fear in horses and how it affected, how it is affected by the rider training and genetics. And there's just so much information in this that we will do it um, as a multiple um, episode, but this will be part one. And I think what I found really drew me in is there is a lot of statistics and there's a lot of numbers and research within this research, but the introduction to it is just, it reads so easily and it's just so interesting and full of information from years ago. And that's kind of the history of the horse that draws me in sometimes as well. And what was really interesting was she started this research paper with a quote by Xenophon, and this was 400 BC. And they said, for the horse does under compulsion, as Simon also observes, is done without understanding, and there's no beauty in it, either any more than if one would whip and spur a dancer. And I just found this fascinating because Xenophon was, who's the author of that quote, was one of the first known um, preserved treaties on equitation. And he's kind of considered the founder of dressage. And way before his time, he was emphasizing the importance of using appropriate rewards and basically being careful with the kind of punishment we use with horses and being light with the reins. And he really emphasized gradual schooling and gradual training. So helping them develop over time. And what I thought was just so interesting is how we've evolved from that at 400 BC is that time pressure as we got towards any kind of wars led to horses being churned out more rapidly because we needed them to do a job. And then we had to come up with methods that rapidly trained the horses to behave. And most of these led to basically teaching the horse to be submissive. So using using pain or using any kind of um, negative reinforcement. And then that seems to have kind of hung over into today's training, even though we don't use it, you know, half as forceful as it was used in the past. And I just thought that was so interesting that, you know, what kind of world could we have had had horses not been used for that purpose? You know, if we had stayed along the lines of gradually training them and just not creating these fear responses, which are so dangerous to the horse and to the rider. Yeah, they. it's just like the coercive methods just kind of give way to more and more welfare concerns. And in today's equestrian world, we have the ability to measure those welfare concerns and actually put numbers and results to them. And that's why this paper is so fascinating is that the test that they did really shows a measurable welfare concern. And it's really the rider that has that implication on the horse. 
So the study basically found that nervous riders are more prone to have these accidents because they actually make the horse nervous and then the horse becomes easily frightened. Yeah, yeah, they got where the exchange of nervousness between the rider to the horse is just more dominant than a nervous horse influencing the rider and making the rider nervous. That just doesn't measurably happen. So um, I thought that was really interesting because how often do you see a nervous rider on a horse that someone else can ride and the horse does nothing wrong? Yeah. But the nervous rider gets on and everything just falls apart. And it's because uh, to me, that horse is saying, oh my God, there's gotta be a prey animal around here somewhere because she's so nervous and he or she is so nervous. And it always makes you wonder that, you know, it's not that the horse is too much for a rider. It's that the rider's personality is making an effect on that horse's reactivity. And it's funny because when I think about my experience of being nervous on horses, like I can imagine before competitions, so particularly before cross-country competitions, I would feel whatever horse I was riding start to really like build up. I could feel their energy and I could feel them getting more flighty. And in my head, like looking back on that before reading this paper, I thought they would have this energy and then I would start to get nervous because I would feel like I was losing control of them the more flighty they got. When actually, and I've said it in other episodes, I really didn't like to compete. So the minute I got on that horse, I caused that. I obviously gave nervous energy to them. They reacted to it and it was to a level where I did perceive that they were doing that. And there's excitement around competitions anyway. And, you know, some competition ponies, they know exactly what they're about to do. You know, the push button ponies that someone starts counting down and the pony actually just starts getting ready to take off. But it really was like an eye opener for me because I thought I always thought I was reacting to them when actually this study showed that the riders weren't as in tune with the horse's nervousness. It was the horse was picking up on the rider. And um, I thought it was interesting when they kind of said that a nervous rider is kind of participating in classically conditioning that horse because the horse learns that when it shies or gets the rider off balance, um, that makes the rider become more timid and less demanding. So then actually the rider asks for much less because they begin to not ride confidently. And so quickly that a horse can pick up, hey, if I step sideways, she's going to kind of say, you know, let's walk 10 minutes and count it a day. So they pick up on that. And the fact that they can do that is because they are prey animals and that's their survival skill is to be able to pick up on the physiological reactions of other horses and people in this instance. I think um, that's so funny because it just reminded me of when 
I used to ride my horse like in the arena. So if we were doing schooling, if it got to a point where she was kind of sick of it, and especially if we were building up to, you know, like a test or some kind of event, she would just lie down. So we we would just be going along and she would just literally stop and get down on the ground. And I thought, there's no way to teach her not to do that because I have to get off every time. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have to get on again. I can't wait it out because she'll roll on her side. Oh, my gosh. Well, I thought to myself, I'm going to look up a definition for what fear is. So I went to Webster's. And this is what a rider is probably thinking when they're full of fear and nervousness. And it's an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger. It's anxious concern or worry. So the higher the anxiety level in that rider, that's going to convey to the horse. And so anyway, um, even the muscle tension that you see in a rider who's somewhat afraid or nervous or say they've taken a, a fall that they were injured and they want to get back into equestrian sport. You see that tenseness. And I thought it was wonderful that in this paper, they um, want to research muscle relaxation techniques for the riders that don't have the ability to actually calm themselves down or to have a um, strong kind of locus of control where they can um, exert calmness even when they're ready to just explode with fear and anxiety. So um, I thought she had three issues to combat fear and it was um, genetically selecting against fear reactivity in horses, which we'll cover that in another episode. But she said to use less coercive riding techniques, which is what Xenophon said in 400 BC. And then she had her third thing as the muscle relaxation techniques. And I thought that that kind of goes along with Sally Swift and the centered riding, where instead of leaning forward, and tending to convey more a forward uh, motion in a horse and that you put pressure on your seat bones maybe to where you're actually uh, tensing and the horse can read that and will, you know, start to act up. So those were her three um, stipends that she put as to control this. Yeah, and I thought that was interesting, too, that she said, you know, if we could use some kind of technology where they put those different points on the rider and see where yeah. it's happening and be able to, because that could be such a useful training aid, you know, if it is muscle tension that is transferring the signal that we're nervous. Um, and she mentions in this as well, the olfactory, which we discussed yeah in that other paper, but she said, because the horses were moving forward, it was unlikely that they were, they were continuously moving and their nostril is obviously ahead of the person. So it's unlikely they picked up those scents, but we don't know yeah. um, how strong they can pick that up. You know, what actually is the capability of that? But I yeah. just thought as a training tool to be able to say, you know, to 
if that was something you could use widespread, put on risers at an early age and say, listen, you need to relax. You're you're tightening up your core. You need to relax. Yeah. And I think last week with the odor, they were even a meter or a yard away from the horse. So who's to say what the horse can and cannot smell? You know, so uh, it could be muscle tension. It could be odor. All we know is there's an increase in the rider's heart rate. And that seems to affect or correlate to the horse's heart rate. Yeah. And in this study, what they did was they had three different um, examples of trying to exert this nervousness. So with the horses, they conditioned them, as Nancy mentioned, um, and how they did that was they gave them like a mild fright when right after they would ring a bell or they would ring a tone of some type. It was different for different groups. But the horse learns that if it heard this noise, this bell, a little fright was about to happen. So then during the actual test, somewhere between point A and B in the arena, they would ring this bell, but they wouldn't actually scare the horse. They would just make the horse nervous that a fright would happen. And the rider knew nothing about it. So the rider didn't know what the bell meant. So this was just literally testing the nervousness of the horse. And they had heart rate monitors on both. So I ring the bell. Will the horse get nervous between A and B? Then in the second round, they told the rider what the bell meant. So they said, look, we're going to ring a bell and the horse is going to get scared to see if that triggered the rider to become more nervous. And then what I thought was so brilliant was for the third one, which would have terrified me, they said to the rider, okay, you know, the second round didn't work. The horse didn't get scared when we rang the bell. So this time we're going to set off this gun, this toy gun, and it's going to make a loud bang because we really want to scare the horse. And we're going to do it between A and B. So as the rider approaches A and B, someone lifts their hands with this toy gun, but they don't actually set it off. And it's just to test that nervous response. But if someone told me they were doing that, I would have been so nervous. <laughs> I would have been. Yep, especially on a thoroughbred, right? Oh, so, could you imagine? <laughs> I know. Well, and the whole thing that shows is that there's such a wide range of physiological uh, metabolic and behavioral responses to that. I mean, even thinking about it, I can feel my heart speed up a little bit, you know, and so this affects the horse as well via heart rate, blood pressure, immune function, and it even stated their activity and sleep patterns change. And so the more fear and flight responses you instill in a horse, the less REM sleep they get. And um, the Equitation Science uh, Society, you know, they say like a horse needs three and a half hours of sleep per 24 hour period. Well, if your horse isn't getting that, they're not going to be at their optimum immune function, trainability. I mean, they're going to develop stereotypies over time. So, um, you know, it's just impacts the whole horse. And again, like how, how do we add fuel to that fire? Because horses will 
you know, nine times out of 10, they'll flight. They'll, the only reason they would ever try and fight a fear is because they're trapped. But when we think about like horses in the wild, they can run for miles. And our horses are either in a stable or they're in a field. So they're really limited with how much flight they actually have. So we can actually end up through their environment, creating almost a chronic stressor in them. And like you were saying, then that can come out in, you know, other things where they've got behavioral problems or even they can produce cortisol, um, which is a stress hormone. Now, cortisol is a good one and a bad one because cortisol gets released positively and negatively. So in stallions, we'll see it gets released when they see a mayor and they start to get aroused. So that's like the positive version. But we mostly talk about the negative because the negative has big effects. And one of the effects of like constant cortisol being released is stomach ulcers, which we know can be a massive problem in horses and are so hard to treat. Yeah. Yeah. And even I think a lack of um, sleep could even contribute to that gastric having a, a low pH in the stomach with that stress and that cortisol and um, definitely why it's so important to make sure your horse has plenty of forage to take up some of that gastric juices that could create lesions in their stomach and I do want to add that that REM sleep they only need about 30 minutes of that but that sleep is absolutely critical 65 percent of a horse's sleep cycle is light sleep like when you see them with their you know relaxed and just kind of you know dozing standing up and dozing and and all that but 30 minutes total they should be laying down um, experiencing that REM sleep. And when they don't get that, they're more likely to collapse and have immune problems. Um, their feeding and defecation cycles are interrupted. So I was amazed. I guess I never thought the flare, the fear and flight response could affect the whole horse if there's just too much of it. I think like we've always thought of it as just a light switch moment. Like mm -hmm. the horse will get a fright, it'll move away from it, done. That's it sorted. Yeah. But I think what really like confounded it for me was the point you made earlier that, you know, a nervous or novice rider can teach that horse repeatedly to be afraid of nothing because of how they react because the horse is taking cues from us. So yeah. if, you know, if a rider had a bad experience on one horse at, you know, letter C in the arena, they get on a different horse and they can actually make that horse nervous walking past that same point because they're giving the cue. Yeah. Yeah. And it's there's they just learn so much from our um, behavior that we don't even know we're doing it. So as you're see, you may tense, you might make exude you know a certain odor who knows but you're telling the horse uh oh there's a mountain lion at letter c and yeah. you know i mean psychologically even it's just uh something that as a rider you need to get over that before you get on your horse and there's probably 
a lot of different mental techniques you could do. And one of them was to do that ride in your mind before you even get on the horse. And um, it's really apparent in other sports that if you visualize um, making a basket in basketball before you throw Mm -hmm. the ball, 90% of the time that ball will go through the hoop if you visualize it. So there's so much we can do as riders to make life easier for our horses. That's such a good point. Did you ever do any show jumping, Nancy? I know that I did cross rails at one time um, with one of my thoroughbreds because he seemed to enjoy it. And I tell you what, I did all leg work on the racetrack and the thought of putting my horses through that strain of like a three foot jump, a four foot jump. Uh, I would be analyzing the footing and probably yeah. doing the workup on what stresses would be on what fetlock and all that. So um, I'm just not into the jumping side of it, but that's just me. I enjoy watching it, but I'm constantly watching the fetlock spend. And- that's like me with them. Um- every competition I enjoy watching but I did I did do some show jumping when I was younger um and it was always local stuff it was never I I was not um a skilled show jumper because I don't like competition I was just not built for competition (laughs) but that's one of the things that we were constantly told to do is you do that course in your mind a hundred times before you get on the horse and you do it or else your horse will not do the course correctly and will not clear the jumps. And we used to walk the course, we would measure it out and go over it and over it. Like from the moment you arrived at the competition that morning, you would go and look at the layout and you would play it in your mind so many times. And the more confident you were that you could just picture it, then you would. It's like making that basket, you would clear the jump. Yeah, I I played a lot of sports and that visualization is very powerful. It just goes to show what our minds are capable of. And so I think it's so important to take in account a rider's personality and pair them with a horse that can handle that personality. So if you're a high strung individual and you go to the barn to ride because it relieves stress, then, you know, maybe pair you with a horse that isn't as reactive. And um, I think if you have a horse that is reactive, you probably, um, number one, it, this research shows the more training hours you put in with a trainer, it seems that those riders don't convey as much fear or nervousness to their horses. So the more you ride, the more you take lessons or the more you get instruction, it seems like the more capable you become in managing your nervousness. Now, there's a lot of professional riders that we all get a little competitive and a little nervous before competing it's how you manage that nervousness that counts. And considering that in humans, horse riding contributes to 25% of all fatal sport injuries, 
it is so important that we don't take it lightly what effect we can have and that this really does look into the fact we can cause an accident through our nervousness. We can elicit that fear. And I think sometimes you just need to consider if you're really worked up and you're really highly strung and your release for that is to go horse riding, then go and see the horse, groom them for a half an hour. You know, that time is so therapeutic. And they've seen that time and time again, the effect of just grooming the horse for the horse and the human. And then you just get the opportunity to relieve some of that stress before you get up on their back. And it can make such a difference. Yeah, that's a great point, because I think it's all just in uh, managing yourself, you know, before you expose um, the horse, you know, to what you're feeling. Because how many times have you had a bad day and you walk in the barn and that horse picks up on it? A dog picks up on it. So, I mean, I think it's picking and choosing what you do with your horse on a day according to what kind of day you're having. If you're angry, don't ride. If you look out the stable instead, if you're angry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or go run, do do a bike ride or a run before you go visit your horse. But um, there's plenty of options in how to manage your emotions. And, um, you know, the fact that this research shows we definitely convey that to the horses. Um, I mean, it was clear cut that the the person, the riders out of all these tests definitely conveyed uh, their rise in heart rate to a rise in heart rate by the horse. So there's definitely some exchange going on. Definitely. I think that's a good point to probably end part one on, but we'll definitely have part two because there's just so much more information within this study that's really fascinating. Yes. And, you know, it's such a pertinent topic because I know there's always uh, at some point in your equestrian career or lifestyle, you either take a fall or something happens that, you know, uh, makes you a little anxious to return to it. And I think all of us come to that point, you know, where whether you're on the racetrack and you get run off with a horse or you're in show jumping and you take a bad fall, you there, everyone at one point experiences this anxiety or this nervousness. And I think to give people a way, a solution, how to manage it, I'm really looking forward to the muscle relaxation part of this, because I think it can give tips for anybody that maybe even returning from an injury that has a little bit of inflexibility due to that injury, if they can have a way to still be able to ride and um, use that muscle relaxation technique to help in that. So I'm excited to cover that as well. And as always, if you would like us to cover, so part two next week, we will still be on the same paper, but If you would like us to cover a specific topic or paper or you want to send us a voice message, please do just head on to the anchor page and you can do that there. Or if you would like to support the reviews of the research that we're doing, there's a support button there as well.
Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kate, for joining in. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Send us emails. Send us messages. Let us know what you want to hear. And we'll see you next week for part two. Take care. Bye-bye.